episode 289. You know, being, being able to just be who we are, to be able to admit that we're imperfect. And I think that's a big one, especially for business leaders. You know, we're talking about the mistakes. And, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know I can speak for myself that I hold myself to a pretty high standard of accountability. And when I make mistakes, you know, like, like the big, like the big dollar mistake that I made, you know, 10 years ago, man. I am my own worst enemy and my own worst critic. And the longer I keep myself down there and then have to try and build up all these walls of protection, if you will, to, to let everybody see that I'm perfect, man, that's, that's a hard life to live. Welcome, aftermarketers, to Remarkable Results Radio. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Welcome, aftermarketers throughout North America and around the world. Happy to usher in the very first episode in the new year 2018 on the most powerful aftermarket resource in the audio realm. Hey, today's episode 289 is with Tony Adams, Vice President of Operations at Weaver's Auto Center in Shawnee, Kansas. Hey, so glad to have the support of Federal Mogul Motor Parts and Garage Gurus. Looking for serious technical training and support online, on-site, and on-demand? Garage Gurus is everything you need to know. Find out more fmgaragegurus.com. You know, it's great to hear from so many aftermarket professionals that write to me via email or through direct messages and social media. I enjoy hearing about your favorite episodes, what you'd like to hear more of, and even topics for Town Hall Academies. I want to encourage you to continue to communicate. The podcast continues to bring an enormous value stream to aftermarket professionals because I listen to you and have grown the content library and website features because you have offered ideas, insights, and suggestions. Keep them coming. Find me at carm at remarkableresults.biz. And the network of continued listeners builds every week. I'm honored to have new Facebook friends, Joe Hoyle, Irvin Bowman, Daniel Costa, and David Roman. And my latest LinkedIn connections, Jason Heise, Randy Gossen, and Beth Hall. Welcome all. Find the podcast social links at RemarkableResults.biz slash social. Now meet Tony Adams, owner and vice president of operations at Weaver's Auto Center in Shawnee, Kansas. Tony's story is about change and leadership. I love to hear from service professionals that have achieved success while toughing through challenges and learning from mistakes. Tony Adams brings his very transparent story of leadership to you. You'll either relate to it, reference it, but no matter. We will all at one time or another in our careers have walked in Tony's shoes. Tony admits to what all good leaders know. Admit your mistakes, learn from them, and move forward. Never stop learning and build a fire under your team to serve the customer. Find the episode's talking points at remarkableresults.biz slash E289. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, you've heard it before. If you want to be a better leader, read and spend time with this episode with Tony Adams from Weaver's Auto Center in Shawnee, Kansas. Hey, a warm welcome to Tony Adams, Vice President of all the great day-to-day operations out at Weaver's Auto Center in Shawnee, Kansas. Good morning, Carm. Thank you. Hey, Tony. Great. Uh, well, I've known about you for a while. Wanted to have you on the show. Then Jeremy O'Neill walks up at the studio at Apex and says, I'd like you to meet Tony Adams. And I said, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy's a, a a great connector of people, isn't he? <laughs> oh God, he is. He really is. And and I am so glad that we connected. And now we're sitting here in the virtual studio. And you know, Tony, can we talk about culture, leadership, 
learning curves, communication? Sure, absolutely. Looking, looking forward to it. Do you count your mistakes as your most important learning tools? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think that, um, you know, and Einstein uh, talked about it. Um, and, and I think you know, lots of people have talked about it and in, in, in Thomas Edison, maybe in, in the invention of the light bulb. You know, it's not that I made a mistake and in the, in the hundreds of times that I made the light bulb, it just, it just didn't work. And then, you know, 1001, it, it did work. But I think that, you know, mistakes, um, if we're able to just be with them and, and not get too enthralled and in, in beating ourselves up, they're our greatest teacher at the end of the day, this is some, some of the best lessons we could ever learn. I've done some interviews, and, and I'm not sure if the discussion that I had with some of the entrepreneurs, some of the service professionals ever made it to the air. Uh, we do a little bit of editing, not a lot, and or I can't remember if it was pre-call or post-interview, but the guy, guy said to me, yeah, I, I probably have made a couple of $5,000 mistakes over the last, say, 10 years, and if I could only get that chance to get it back, you got me big memory of a major mistake you made. Yeah, the biggest costly mistake that I think I've made is is rushing into um, uh, something. There was a, a business that we uh, uh, attempted to purchase or merge with and uh, jumped in and, and really didn't do the, the due diligence that I needed to do and, and didn't have all the information that I needed to have. And it ended up falling apart. And then it ended up, uh, you know, going to court. Uh, I mean, it was it was an expensive uh a very expensive mistake. Um, and you know, that has a tendency to, you know, geez, I wish I would, I wish I could, I wish I shouldn't have, but, um, it's a pretty great, uh, pretty great teacher of, you know, how to do things or how not to do things, I guess, moving forward. How do you recover from stuff like that? Digging in deeper, being able to self, uh, evaluate and say, you know, what were the mistakes that I did make going through this process? What are the things that I need to do, uh, differently? Um, how do I, you know, keep from making that same mistake again? And just, uh, I think the self-evaluation piece, Carm's the biggest piece, being able to say, what do I do differently next time? So I don't do that again. You're a reader. Yes. Latest book you just read? Uh, right now, I'm actually working on uh, The Power of Vulnerability by Dr. Brene Brown. I think uh, Jude uh, talked about that on one of your town hall conversations. Yes. And uh, man, holy cow, what a, what a great, great book that uh, everybody should pick up and read. Uh, what's your biggest takeaway right now from the book? You know, one of the things that she talks about uh, at the very beginning of the book is uh, how to doesn't work. If how-to worked, we would not be the most uh, in-debt, obese, medicated, and addicted humans to walk the face of the planet. Oh, boy. And it's really getting to the, to the root cause of, you know, uh, for, especially for men, hard for us to be vulnerable, but way beyond that, everybody and understanding that, you know, shame triggers and things that are, that get in the way and, and overachieving and, and, and all of this stuff and, and garbage that um, keeps us from being authentic and showing up as our authentic selves. And, you know, that quote that she used about how to doesn't work is just, it's so true. You know, if how-to worked, right, we just all pick up a book and read it and then we'd be done. You know, we, we know that we shouldn't eat some of the things that we eat, but yet we continue to do that and all the medical problems that come along with it, right? The, the information's out there. Have you gotten to the point in the book where she tells you, you know, how to fix that? Is it, is it, is it greater disciplines? Is it to, to know the why? I think some of it is definitely knowing the why. And I think it's about showing, you know, and what she's talking about specifically is just it's showing up and being able to be vulnerable. 
You know, being, being able to just be who we are, to be able to admit that we're imperfect. And I think that's a big one, especially for business leaders. You know, we're talking about the mistakes. And, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know I can speak for myself that I hold myself to a pretty high standard of accountability. And when I make mistakes, you know, like, like, the, big, like the big dollar mistake that I made, you know, 10 years ago, man. I am my own worst enemy and my own worst critic. And the longer I keep myself down there and then have to try and build up all these walls of protection, if you will, to, to let everybody see that I'm perfect, man, that's, that's a hard life to live. So knowing how to put it behind you mm-hmm. is important. It's huge. Yeah, how to be able to move through it and, and get past it, you know, and, and recognize, you know what, uh, and be able to openly admit we're not perfect. <laughs> you know, we are, we are imperfect. We are going to make mistakes. You know, Carm, you and I put our pants on the same way, right? I'm sure you make the mistakes still and, and so do I. And it's, man, really hard to, uh, to get past some of those things. But, you know, the answer is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. And so it's really being able to just be present to, I think, how you're feeling, be able to recognize when you're angry, um, how to show up and be authentic. So, I mean, it, uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. I, I, when I'm done with it, I'm going to reread it. <laughs> you know, taking ownership, saying I goofed, saying I'm sorry, apologizing to me became very important lessons a little later in my life than I guess I should have accepted them. And, you know, you said the word vulnerable. I, I wrote it down. Uh, I am so into the interviews, you know, when we're doing them, and I, I learn from them myself. And one of the things that I know that I do for the automotive aftermarket is I get stories told. And I get stories told to help inspire people and get that wisdom shared. And, you know, when people tell their stories of vulnerability, it helps people not only realize that it's okay to be, it's okay to say I'm wrong. It's okay to admit ownership, but it also shows that people grow from it. Absolutely, you know, and, and it's part of the it's part of the healing process, right? It doesn't really make any any difference um, whether it's a, a little mistake or a big mistake, right? It just you know the bigger mistakes is but being able to admit I made one. Right. That's, that's part of the road to recovery. It's, it's kind of like, you know, step one of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? It's admitting it. You have a problem, (laughs) you know, okay, I admit I made a mistake. So now I can, I can work on uh, moving through that. Your history, were you a technician like many other shop owners were? No, I wasn't actually. Uh, I started in the, in the business when I was, uh, I probably broke some child labor laws when I worked with my dad. He was a technician, uh, and, you know, swept the floors and took out the trash and washed cars and, um, you know, those sorts of things took care of the parking lot and building maintenance stuff. And, uh, just kind of, you know, when I graduated, uh, high school, you know, started taking over parts management, we have a collision repair facility and a mechanical repair facility both. So I was, uh, over parts management, collision repair, then kind of took over production management and, you know, became general manager. And then somewhere along the line, John and I became business partners. And so I've never done the technical work, uh, on the cars. I've not been the hands-on guy. Um, although I could go out and, uh, change spark plugs and change oil and can fix a dent in a quarter panel, uh, could paint a car, probably not going to be as nice uh, a job as what uh, our awesome staff could do, but I can go out and do it and have kept myself educated right along with them. So I can at least uh, talk their lingo. So Weavers is both mechanical and collision. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty big place. 
Yeah, it's uh, about 21,000 square feet. We're a little over $4 million a year operation between the two, uh, between the two sides of the business. Um, really, uh, our service department's about a $900,000 a year operation. So, and really focused on uh, trying to grow that side of the business now is I think that's where the future of the, of the industry uh, is going to be. Collision repair businesses, you know, my, in my humble opinion, 30 years from now is not going to be what it is today. You know, all the technology in the cars, the sonar, the radar, the autonomous driving, you know, they're, they're, they're doing things to take the human element uh, from collisions out of the equation. Uh, the good news, I think, for service professionals uh, is going to be it's going to take somebody to know how to program those cars and how to reprogram those cars and relearn those cars. And uh, so I, that's where we're kind of focusing our efforts. Now. I agree. I think the opportunities are huge for people that uh, want to be a perpetual student and continue to learn and, and, and not shy away from any of the technology. Uh, as I always, one of my favorite quotes is jump into the deep end of the pool, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Get submerged. Know why you install Felpro, the gaskets professionals trust? Every part that goes into a Felpro box is validated and approved by a Felpro engineer. Product testing and validation is an integral part of Felpro's engineering, manufacturing, and field testing, where vehicles undergo tests that log over 1 million miles every year. They also reach out to you, the pro, through technology blogs and their technical forums to listen, learn, and keep in touch with you. It's amazing to think that Felpro produces over 325,000 gaskets per day. That's 325,000 per day in their 1 million square foot facility in Skokie, Illinois. Under the same roof, engineering and manufacturing uphold Felpro quality, utilizing 4,500 active production tools with tooling tolerances to 5 microns. Now that's smaller than a human hair. A tight tolerance like that ensures the sealing ability of Felpro gaskets. And their own in-house chem lab develops proprietary formulations like Permadry Plus to produce 35,000 molded rubber sealing components every day. Plus, with Felpro, you get coverage from 1955 of 96% of all domestics and 93% of all import vehicles. So feel confident that with new engines and new technologies, Felpro will be there with innovative solutions to solve your customers' sealing problems. Felpro, the gaskets professionals trust. Go to felpro-only.com for more information. You know that 70% of professional technicians install Moog? Do you know who is best in class in engineering R&D? Do you know who holds 47 patents and has 28 dedicated engineers on staff? Yeah, Moog. You should know that 85% of Moog socket-style components are manufactured in North America, and that makes Moog best-in-class for manufacturing. And since 1966, every NASCAR championship has been won on Moog parts. But you knew that. I know why you install Moog. They solve your problems. Over the years, Moog has provided problem-solving innovations like a patented pressed-in cover plate, powdered metal gusher-bearing technology, compression-loaded ball joints, with a pre-installed integral dust boot, and vertical control arm bushings. You know why you install Moog. Enhanced durability, improved performance, and ease of installation. For more information, go to moogparts.com. Now you know. Hey, so not a technician, business owner, uh, leader, a major transformation to be, to be a good leader. Got any great stories? Oh my gosh, yeah. I grew up 
an environment that you know that my business partner was from the old age of of management. You know, I jump, you say how high. Um, yeah, you're here for me, not the other way around. And and uh, it was when I I really started working with a business coach and and understanding that manager and leader had two different meanings. They they weren't the same thing. Although we we sometimes mistakenly interchange those two words, uh, not really knowing it. But you know, we were in a spot where we were having we had just moved into this new facility and we were really kind of struggling with business. And a friend of mine pushed me into calling a business coach, and I started reading and and like wow. I've been at this uh, the complete wrong way. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, it, it just, I've been out, you know, bossing and telling people what to do and uh, not really opening up and inviting collaboration and, and really forced me to be a leader instead of a manager. Although sometimes I'm both, you know, because I think they, you know, sometimes you do have to manage things, but more often than not, I try to just right, lead my people and, and, and understand and just learning and reading. That's right, right how I got there. You delegated. I mean, what was one of the big things that happened? Because in so many leadership capabilities, if you're a manager, you're, sometimes you're a micromanager. You're telling people what to do at all times. You never accept the work that they do. It's never good enough for you. you Got to learn how to pull back. Was that part of it? Yeah, I think it was part of it. You know, one of the very um, first books that I read was One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. You know, trying to uh, learn and identify that I was taking on my people's re- responsibilities. Uh, you know, I think there's three types of managers. You know, there's there's the the do for manager, and right? it's it's the one who comes in and does everything for everybody, and, and and we think they're being helpful, right? We we really think we're we're protecting our people. Let me do that work for you. Let me stay late for you, right? Let me protect you. I'll take on all, all of that burden at some point in time. And I know it's different for for everybody who's in that do for cycle. Uh, they get mad and they become the next type of manager, which is a do to manager. Right, it's here. I'm not doing this anymore. You do it. Uh, you do your own job. I'm not working late anymore. I'm not taking on these responsibilities or what they, you know, talked about in that book, the, the monkeys of other people. Uh, and we become a do to manager. And you know, shortly after we we do to somebody in that way, Carm, uh, I really believe that we we start to feel bad. It's like. Man, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have went off like that. I shouldn't have talked to them like that. So, so we start the cycle back over, and, and we start doing four again, and we stay on this perpetual hamster wheel, right? And do two, do four, do two, do four, do two, do four, do two, do four, do two, and you know, I think it really takes a different mindset, and that's and that's to be the do with. You know, let me do this with you. You know, let me let me make sure that you have everything that you need, and and being able to get comfortable saying. You know, if I have to to do this for you, uh, we have a problem, right? And I don't I don't need somebody. Um, and being able to say that from a from a just matter of fact, non threatening, heart of peace place, and be able to put the responsibilities back where they go. And I think some of it's just we aren't aware that we're in that do for do two cycle, carb. And I and I think it uh, gets us in trouble. It was a big book for you. Oh, it was a huge book for me. It was the very first book my, my coach had me read. You know, the book kind of opens up and talking about a manager that's sitting in his office with big glass windows and he looks outside to, uh, his window and he sees all of his employees uh, playing golf while, while he's in there working on a Saturday morning. Uh, and I kid you not, uh, the only difference between me and that guy is there wasn't a golf course on my Saturday morning which was actually when I was in there reading the book and, and doing work. 
And uh, it was like, oh my gosh, like I can't, I can't believe this. Like this book was written about me, uh, for me, and and really spoke volumes to to what I needed to do differently. And it was the first step in understanding that it wasn't my job to do the work. You know, and that was part of the the transition. You know, I didn't I didn't get hired in to be a business owner. I didn't go to a a, a four year college or an Ivy League college and take lots of management and business course degrees to learn how to be a manager. Right, I, I kind of progressed my way up through the ranks, and um, even though it wasn't from the from the technical side, it was still from a doing side. Whether it was writing estimates or production management or parts management, and so what I did was uh, you know do 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 do. And when I got into to that role in that position. I never really understood that it wasn't my job to do, do, do anymore. It was really to lead. It was to, you know, set the vision of the company and to, you know, make sure we create a culture and, uh, you know, the financial responsibility to the shareholders and the things like that. So, so to read that book and go, oh, wait a minute, that's me. I'm, I'm micromanaging and I'm taking on everybody's responsibilities. And then, you know, you start thinking about some of those things from a, from a, a human side and how we really dehumanize and devalue our employees when we start taking on their responsibilities. You know, you know Tony, as a do-do-do guy, did you just feel stressed to the max? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's not good either, right? Stress releases cortisol in the system and it creates all kinds of negative, negative side effects, you know, from a, from a health perspective. And, and I've, and I've experienced some of those um, side effects from the stress perspective, but yes, yeah, you feel it. Yeah. It's not, not good. You know, I couldn't go home and be a good dad. I couldn't go home and be a good husband. Um, Cause you just, I'm not Tony the father or Tony the husband or Tony the business owner. I'm just Tony. Is it possible because your communication style is uh, uh, a high dominant? Oh, holy cow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once we started using uh, assessments and, uh, and really getting into, you know, we use an assessment, it, it, it measures, you know, uh, behaviors, you know, it's a disc tool. It, it talks about motivators. By the way, we've talked about it on the show. We actually did an entire academy on behavior styles. We talked about disc, which is why I brought it up because I know you, you, you actually use it inside the company. So we can kind of relate, relate to that academy. I'm sure my listeners will go back and say, Hey, let me go learn what Tony's talking about. Yeah, so I was a I'm a 98 or uh, dominant style, and I'm an 04 influential. For all those people that know anything about this, so I uh, am uh, aggressively critical. So being able to know and understand that about myself um, allowed me to have better communication with my people too. You know, and so you know, being in that do do for do two cycle, and then that behavioral style come out that I really didn't understand about myself either. Uh, holy cow! It, it must have been brutal to work. Uh, there is an awful lot of people who aren't high dominant D's. They just can't get along with you. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. So, you know, it, it helped me with, you know, communication and understanding that about myself so I could adapt my communication style and, and uh, know that uh, people who are directly opposite of me, which are the really high steady styles, man, if I want to have really good communication with those people, I can't, I can't come in. Uh, guns blazing and and uh, in the brain out the mouth. I can with other high dominant styles. They actually appreciate it because I get to the point and I'm quick and I say what I need to say and you know out out, out we go. But man, I really shut people down when uh, you know you you try and do a one size fits all of communication with everybody. Yeah, I like that guy Tony. He I I I can really boy boy man he he's a cool guy. But anyone else says anyone else says no way. He's a jerk. <laughs> 
can't handle that guy at all. Never want to sit down in his office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it was fun learning uh, learning about myself uh, from that perspective. You know, it doesn't change who I am, and my communication style is still the same. It's just a level of awareness now to know that I most certainly can rub people the wrong way. So you you learned all this. You read books. You strive to be a better leader. Where did the change of culture and putting the culture in place? When did that really start taking shape? Some of the stuff, you know, in, in books that we were reading, like um, the new gold standard, you know, the, the Ritz Carlton experience, we're, we're reading uh, raving fans and, uh, and gung ho and, and books like, you know, Tony Zappos delivering happiness. I mean, a lot of books on culture. And I really started kind of looking at my culture and going, you know, I have a culture that's dependent on me and I don't want to be here for <laughs> forever. Uh, and I, you know, could get run over by a bus tomorrow and, and what would my employees be left with? And so it, it really it kind of said, what do I want the culture of the business to be? We didn't really have a, a vision. I didn't know really what a vision was, didn't really have a mission statement, really didn't talk about core values. And so I started kind of figuring out, you know, why am I here and why are we here? And, you know, beyond fixing cars, that's just a product of what we do. That's not not really a why piece to that whatsoever. And so, you know, as I started, you know, it, it, when, when, I hired, when I hired my coach and, and you know, kind of hit rock bottom, I guess, if you will, and was miserable and not making any money and, you know, huge losses and things that I had never really kind of felt with before and started going through that learning and self-discovery phase. It was like, oh, well, here's why I'm doing everything because I've never really set clear um, expectations and accountability for my people. My people aren't engaging because I don't allow them to engage. They're not engaged because everybody wants to be part of something bigger and nobody wants to just fix cars for a living, right? We have to start connecting the dots of how fixing cars connects to the greater good of society. And so it was just kind of a, and we're still not there, Carm, by, by any means. It's a, I don't, I don't think it's something you check off on your to-do list and say, culture's fixed, right? It, it, it's a continued, continued evolution. But, you know, for me, uh, that's how we started really digging in and, and working on culture. People love to be, belong to an organization that is beyond like what you said, mm -hmm. fixing, fixing cars. Culture inside your business uh, really has a positive effect on the customer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're an employee first uh, organization. Two things that I really pay attention to. Um, one is employee engagement. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that in our organization, it's employees first. It's not the customer first. It's employees first. Um, if my employees are engaged, they're happy, they're taken care of, they're healthy, their needs are being met, then they're going to be in a better position to do the second most important thing to me, which is customer engagement. And if my customers are truly connected and engaged and, and, and are uh, tied to our business, and you know, we had people that come in and say, man, the best thing that ever happened to me is crashing my car. Like, Really, <laughs> that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you've you know you've reached a level of engagement with um, with with your customers, and I think those two things are the business separators. Why would they say that? Because they're comfortable at Weavers. Yes, because we make them feel comfortable and, and it's about transparency here. And, you know, most shops have big signs up on the doors that say, stop, insurance regulations say nobody is allowed behind this door. We say, you want a tour? It come, come through. Take, take a look at what happens behind the Wizard of Oz curtain. We want, we want transparency. We want you to be involved. We want, we want you to see what we're doing here. And we genuinely take the time to get to know our customers. 
you know, tell us about you. You know, this isn't Mrs. Smith's, you know, red uh, accord. This is Mrs. Smith. And Mrs. Smith is a, a nurse. She delivers to babies. You know, it, we're, we're, con- we're making sure that she can get back to her life as quickly as possible and she can go do her jobs. Everybody has a story. That's the key. I mean, you look at all the great, you know, I think part of the learning for all of us is we have to get outside, you know, our wheelhouse of learning because we get really kind of tunnel focused into uh, we fix cars, we fix cars, we fix cars. But you look at the companies who have been, you know, really, really successful. Um, Southwest Airlines, Apple, Zappos, Lululemon, um, you know, we, we could go on and on and on about the list. There, there's one of those, the, one thing that all those companies have in common Um and as they connect, you know, they have, they have really good stories with their, their customers. They have a purpose, you know, it's, um, and they're able to, they don't have to compete at this, at this low level, right? Where, where most organizations are competing on the four P's of marketing, right? The product placement, price promotion. So, you know, none of those things are really truly business separators. It's the fifth P, people, right? Our, our employees. If we, if we have a healthy culture, we're going to have healthy customers. Bingo. Love it. Love what you're saying. Love what you're saying. Great, great stuff. Is there a solution to the technician shortage? Yeah, we got to train them, <laughs> right? We, we, we've got to start getting out in front of schools. We've, we've got to get uh, in front of Votex. We have to start making this an exciting career for them. Um, yeah. So, you know, in our shop, all of our guys are hourly. Um, we don't have any commissioned technicians because a commissioned shop doesn't breed a, an environment of teamwork or an environment of training. Not to say you can't get it done, but at some point in time, you know, we as shops are going to have to stop complaining about the technician shortage and start getting involved with our Votex. And, and uh, you know, there's guys that, um, you know, think about somebody that we had an employee that we hired that um, literally he came from uh, flipping hamburgers at Wendy's. You know, and we brought him in here actually on the body shop side and, uh, and he was, uh, you know, a couple of days in, we teached him how to grind welds on a bedside and he's laying on his back. You have to picture this image, right? He's laying on his back. He has a welding blanket, uh, draped around him like a Superman cape and, and, and another welding blanket laid over the top of him and he's yelling at the top of his lungs. This is the best job I've ever had in my life. Uh, you know, and, and it's like, we're all like, really? That's cool. But the reality is, is there's people out there that truly want to work. You know, the mind shift, mind uh, set shift, I think that has to happen um, is we're all looking for somebody that we can just go plug and play. You know, we want that 30 year veteran, a technician and, and they're just, they already have jobs. We're done with that. And I think you're right. You, we've got to, we've got to step up to the plate. Um, and and I, I love to hear your story. I love to hear the energy from the, the young man who totally fell in love with his job. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and spoke it from the highest mountain, if you will. Yes, absolutely. Must be a testament to the culture in your business, to the team environment that you've created, to the fact that he sees happy customers as a result of his job. Mm-hmm. And we have to do more and more and more and more and more of this. It's almost like the new reality is grow your own, but we still have to do what you said. Get involved in the trade schools, talk to the PTO, yes. the parent-teacher groups. Um, they're, they're still The grassroots can't go away. We have to build that. 
Yeah, we have to build on it. And we just have to start shifting our our, our mindset around how we're going to bring these people in, right? The, the plug and play guy's not there. So we're going to have to pair them up with a with a senior technician. You know, we're gonna, we, we have to start thinking about career paths in our shop. It's stuff that we never thought about before, right? We got, we've got Chad, who's, who's a, a really a super, super awesome diagnostic technician. Um, and it took him a long time to get there. So it's going to take a long time for one of these apprentices to get there. So how, so what's the career path to take a guy from flipping burgers at Wendy's, if you will, to a diagnostician that takes time. It reminds me of almost having to rethink our cost structure in our companies. You know, I, I need an A. Well, you need an A because maybe you didn't grow one. Maybe there's no one in the ranks. And okay, maybe the B tech is ready to be an A because you lost your A. And, and I get all that. But sometimes we stop and we think, I really don't want to spend the money to bring someone on to train someone. Yep. You train them and then I'll hire him. But that's going away. That strategy's going away. Yeah, there's less and less, right? It's it's not just our industry. It's you know, it's the it's the truck driving industry. I mean, they're right, all all of these kind of technical um hands-on type of jobs. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, the trucking industry, I see ads all the time on TV, like it's college tuition reimbursement, come drive trucks for us. Their strategies of, of attaining people to come do that have drastically shifted over the last seven years, seven, 10 years. And, and ours really hasn't yet. You know, I, I would see a point in the time, Carm, where, you know, like my Chad and, and my business, you know, the value that he provides to this organization is going to be less and less dependent on, on, on the hands, Right, and actually physically touching, and is going to be the value is going to be on his ability to lead a group of technicians and and be the the brains behind it while they are the hands on a car. And I think that's some of the shifts they're going to have to start happening to to grow these guys. Wow, pocket protectors rule. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's going to be. I think um, you know it's going to be the same thing for us on the collision side. You know, our A technicians that we have now, we have the same crisis on on that side of the industry as we do the mechanical side of the industry. It's you know those guys that are really proficient and know how to do it. Their their value is going to be less and less on the actual production and more and more on their ability to lead a, a, a cell or a group of kids. You charging for diagnostic time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, level one uh, testing, level two testing, level you know three testing, different rate. You know, you know, level one stuff for the you know common, easy to figure out. Level two stuff, a little deeper. Level threes, the it only happens on Thursdays when it's snowing outside, and uh, I turn right. You know, kind of kind of scenarios that we have to figure out. So yeah, I interviewed uh, Dutch Silverstein, and he said, "Operate with integrity, or just don't bother to operate at all." You agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was actually a, uh, a story of uh, Dan Cathy from uh, Chick-fil-A that um, he came out to do a, a keynote presentation to a, a group of coffee makers. That was kind of what his keynote was. said, if you're going to make a good cup of coffee, make a good cup of coffee. If you're going to make a bad cup of coffee, make a bad cup of coffee. But whatever you do, be consistent. And he turned around and walked off the stage. It was his keynote, his keynote speech. And I think it goes along with what you're saying, right? I think we have to have a level of integrity in our business and we have to be consistent about the level of service that we're going to deliver at the end of the day. Will that crash through the terrible image that we have? I think it will eventually. It's not going to get, it's not going to get done um, overnight, but I think it will. You know, I think so many shops operate on this, um, 
the scarcity mentality, right? And, and it's, you know, this is the last time I'm ever going to see this customer. So I've got to get all $3,000 worth of work today. And, you know, I've told my team, like, I will fire you on the spot if I see you doing that to a customer and you're high-fiving in the back lot for that. Um, that's not who our business is going to be. You know, we know the potential lifetime value of a customer um, for us. If we get you when you're 16 years old and we're able to keep you until you're, you're 75, you know, but on both the collision and the mechanical repair side, we know that one customer without referrals, without inflation, uh, if we had that entire life cycle is $87,500. That's what I want. I don't, I don't want $3,000 today. I want Eighty-seven thousand five hundred over the course of the next sixty years. You know, I want a, a relationship with you, and I think if we can shift out of that scarcity mentality of trying to get everything today and say, you know what, listen, Carm, here's what you need to do today, and here's what we need to do next week, and and you know what, you got a timing belt repair coming up in six months. You need to start budgeting for that, right? Start start putting some money away. You know what we need to do today is what you came in here for. That, that's what, because that's what you planned on doing. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, we were, uh, you know, probably like a lot of shops and, and I don't know, right. I've been kind of learning my way through, through this mechanical repair business. Cause most of my background's been the collision repair. And we had a lady sitting up front and, uh, you know, we had the special little fluid tray and right. You got the clean transmission fluid and the dirty transmission fluid. And then the service advisor goes up to this lady who's sitting all by herself in the office and says, Hey, you know, here's your fluid tray. Everything looks really good except for your transmission fluid. I know you're in here for an oil change today, but we can get that taken care of for you today if you'd like. And it's only blah, blah, blah in, in dollars and cents. And and you, I, I wish I could, I had this on video, but the lady's expression, you could see, you know, what was going on in her prefrontal cortex. It was fight or flight, right? She was like, oh, she's like, dude, she's, she's drawing in and she's like, ah, oh, do I have to do that today? It's like, well, no, you don't have to, but you know, from a convenience standpoint, we can sure get that done for you today. And she said, ah, oh, no, I, I don't want to do that today. And I, and that was the last time we did that. It, it was such a, I don't know, I don't know what the technical term is. And the term I use with my staff when we talk about that story is it, it just, it felt icky. It was like we, we forced our customer into a position where they had to, to tell us no. And I said, we're not ever going to do that again. So now the process is you come in for an oil change. Uh, that's what you're getting. And then we're going to review what you need to do today and tomorrow because I'm not living on a scarcity mentality. There's plenty of work out there. If we just right educate people, here's what you need to do. We want to protect your investment and keep you going for 300,000 miles. If that's what you want to do, Carm, you need to service your transmission fluid. It can wait until next month. Heck, it can wait until the next uh, oil change if you want, and, and we can get that done. The only exception to that, of course, is if there's some sort of safety issue. You know, you got a, a wheel about to fall off. We're going to march you out in the shop and say, see this side that's good and see this side that's really loose. You know, it shouldn't be like that. And it's, you know, so, but I, but I think it just goes away from getting away from that. If you can get, move away from the scarcity mentality and just take time and build a connection with the customer, educate them about what their car needs, and then walk them through a plan to help them budget for it. Because even if the lady would have bought that transmission service, uh, she would have went home with buyer's remorse. Because what she planned on spending today was you know, $38.95 for an oil change. It wasn't $180 or whatever it would have been. 
it wasn't in our plan. It wasn't in our budget. And I think we have to be careful of how we force those things onto customers. I think the budget is also key. When I when I interviewed Dutch, uh, he he showed me this incredible chart about what people have in their savings account. And the vast majority of Americans don't have the kind of money that is necessary to function in life. And so they make those decisions every step of the way in every interaction in their life based on available funds. One of the things that I got from Dutch that I heard you say, Customers for Life, he was talking about. And I don't mean to talk about Dutch, but it was just a great interview. People got to go back and listen to Dutch Silverstein's interview as well as they must listen to this. Uh, Tony, you're, you're bringing up some great points. So here's the thing. Here's what I thought. And I'm a conceptual guy, kind of like you. And I thought that on every computer terminal, on a plaque in the, in, in the, um, in the employee um, break room, in the office, there's a big sign that says, Customers for Life. For Life. Mm-hmm. That should be the culture of any service business today. And it, would, and it guides every decision you make. Absolutely, it does. And that's it. Guides all of our technicians' decisions. They know the lifetime value of a customer eighty seven thousand five hundred. You know what? We're just going to take care of this today. You know, we'll catch you next time. And it's every decision that we make is based on the lifetime value of that customer. And customers for Life is a great book, by the way, too. Carl Sewell's book. If uh, I don't know if you've ever read that or not, I have never read it. You know, what's so amazing about being in this position that that I'm in in the industry. I'm bringing the voices of the industry to the aftermarket is there's only 50 books that I have to read. I've been a great reader my whole life. I've got a shelf full, you know, I probably have 150 books, you know, business books that that I've read and I've got my faves, but boy, it's just amazing and very impressed of the service professionals out there that have learned to be a good leader because they became a reader. And it, and it is something that any successful businessman in any industry must do. If you could send a message to yourself, your 10-year-ago self, what would it be? Slow down. Pause. <laughs> to take a breath. Uh, not, uh, not every decision is uh, a life-threatening decision. Not every decision needs to be made right this minute. That would be it. That would be my message. You know, sometimes I think, uh, I know definitely in my earlier days, and I still make that mistake from time to time now, Carm is got to pause, just breathe. As Stephen Covey talked about it in one of his books, right? That the word responsibility, right? You hyphenate that out. It's responsibility. It's our ability to respond um, to a situation. But that's what I would have told my, uh, my 10 year ago younger self. Slow down. Tony Adams, Vice President, Weaver's Auto, Shawnee, Kansas. Great words of wisdom. Anything else to share, you know, top of mind stuff that uh, we can pick from your thoughts? Yeah, you know what? Just uh, you, you talked about the reading piece. Keep keep reading. Our, our brains are a muscle and they will atrophy like every other muscle in our body once we stop using it. Um, and it's the best source of uh, learning for our brains. Thanks for being on the show, man. All right, Carm. Thank you very much. Culture and leadership helped transform a good company into a great one. Thank you, Tony Adams, for an inspiring episode demonstrating that leadership is learned. Find the episode talking points at remarkableresults.biz slash E289. And thank you for joining us and your support of the Aftermarket's premier podcast. I know you're finding a treasure trove of learning opportunities and wisdom in the podcast archives that include the individual interviews and the Town Hall Academy single subject forums. Now, the website is packed 
with so many ways to find a topic of interest. Now, if you have any questions or comments, or like me to recommend a few episodes to you, email me at karmatremarkableresults.biz or head over to the contact page on the website. Your learning curve never sounded so good. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time, 